When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Network, but not from Headstuff. Welcome to Mother Folklore, the quarantine sessions, the podcast about keeping a safe distance from each other and talking about words, Irish, Irish words, and words from Ireland. I'm Derek O'Shea. Recently, there was a phenomenon in the news where Elon Musk, a businessman of some note, and Grimes, a Canadian singer of some note, had a baby with an unusual name. This is something that maybe we had a, a lot of people in Ireland had a wry smile about because. We're used to having unusual names, and it's something maybe that Irish will go abroad and um, have absences of an experience with dealing with. But today I'm going to talk to someone who has an interesting story about that. But before we get on to that, I want to talk about a wonderful country, a mysterious country, a country that Ireland has an unusual relationship. The country is Belgium, and my guest is a man who's been an Irish man who's been living there for a while. John Highland, welcome to Mother Folklore. Thanks, Eric. You're very welcome. How are things over in Belgium today? They're good. Things are lovely over here. Yeah. Nice and sunny. It is certainly very sunny here. Yeah. Not typical Belgian weather, but yeah, it's good. I just, whenever I'm in, in Brussels, I just love getting myself a nice beer, some chips, some uh, frites, moule frites, with some little, maybe some mayonnaise in the chips, and maybe afterwards having a waffle with some chocolates, with some chocolate on it. It's a fine city for food. It is, yeah. I mean, uh, very pleasant surprise coming over here to find another country that also loves potatoes and beer as much as <laughs> we do back home. So yeah, that's fit right in in that respect. What, yeah. what took you to Belgium? Uh, I got a job uh, working for um, Friends of the Earth, an environmental NGO here. Mm-hmm. And they're here because, like all the other NGOs, because the EU is here. Okay. So I didn't really pick Belgium because I wanted to move to Belgium. It's like the job was here. And so like a lot of people, I kind of ended up here almost by accident. But uh, mm. yeah, it was, you know, definitely not, wasn't expecting it to be as lovely as this. And I've been here for nearly eight years now. Eight years. Yeah. And so you, you probably had no idea where your life was taking you. No, I went, I came here for six months, eight years ago. <laughs> so, yeah. Fantastic. And and in your time since there, I suppose you've, um, you've probably started noticing some curious differences between the Belgians and the Irish. Uh, yeah, I mean, the like I said, we're similar in some respects for uh, the, the beer, certainly. Um, and yeah, and the seeing 
bilingual with street, street signs is another another nice thing. But I don't know. It's like uh, yeah, the the level of disorganisation is uh, something I've you know wasn't prepared for. I would say. I think there's just a chaotic element to to the city and to any interactions with public life that it's kind of uh, hard to hard to get used to. I think there's kind of a a bit of a culture shock for people moving over here and then suddenly they have to deal with all this archaic and opaque uh, administration. I'd say so. I remember, um, I remember maybe it was nine or eight or nine or ten years ago, back when people were, were starting to notice the Tea Party after. Sarah Palin entered the national stage in America. People, Belgium at the time was in was without a government indefinitely for a while, and people started in a conservative as America started saying, "Well, look at Belgium. That's that country's working fine without a government. We don't need a government. You know, we can just have a kind of a a pleasant anarchy um, as long as things just let let things run themselves." And obviously, it wasn't actually like that. Yeah, actually, so Belgium is we've now we in Belgium have now reached about a year without a government since the last election. <laughs> um, they did have the world record, which was then beaten by Northern Ireland. So Northern <laughs> Ireland currently holds it, but Belgium is now going to try and catch up again. Um, but it's not 100% true to say that they didn't have a government. They didn't have a federal government, but Belgium mm. has more governments than they know what to do with to a certain extent. Um, this is right. And even with, with the COVID um, situation, one of the things was pointed out was that I think technically Belgium has 11 health ministers. It could very well be that many. <laughs> uh, yeah, so they um, there's the federal government, which mm-hmm. deals with a lot of the stuff that a normal national government would. And then there's three regional governments. So Belgium is split into Flanders in the north, Wallonia in the south and then Brussels, which is like a little island of itself in Flanders. Mm -hmm. So they've got regional governments. And then there's a little German speaking minority um, that have um, a type of parliament assembly thing. Mm -hmm. And then there's another parliament that is a Francophone cultural parliament shared between Brussels and French speaking Walloons. Aye. And there's the European Parliament, which just happens to be here as well. <laughs> so Imagine a lot of parliaments. They love their parliaments. That's, that's, um... So while there was no federal government, there were lots of other governments willing to uh, try and get on with things, I guess. Yeah, it makes you think that, I suppose, yeah, which which part uh, would you notice most of those removed? It's, uh, I guess, what, what part of government people kind of, um, do people notice most? I mean, I guess the local to a certain extent, um, mm-hmm. which is also crazy here because there's, um, yeah, there's like, I can we're used to like the county council and the city council in Ireland, mm-hmm. but here there's, the country is, you know, it's a third the size of Ireland and it's mm-hmm. got 580 something local councils. Mm-hmm. And all of those local councils, they deal with stuff like the bins, the road repair, uh, you know, getting rid of the snow in the winter and all that sort of stuff. It is yeah. super local. Yeah, that's that's it's an interesting way to do things because on one level, I suppose sometimes when people talk about comparing Brussels uh, and Belgium in general to Ireland, they'll point out things like the cost of rent and things like this, and they'll say maybe that um that on one level they 
while they have too much government, they have worked out local government fairly well. And that's yeah. reflected in some of those things. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, comparing, I mean, it's hard to compare Dublin rent-wise to anywhere, but compared <laughs> to here, uh, it's certainly easier. But I mean, this local government difference becomes kind of crazy uh, because, so there's there's uh, 18 or 19 of these communes in Brussels itself. Mm. Um, and we brought in a system like the Dublin bikes afterwards, yeah. but one commune decided they didn't want it. So <laughs> it, you'd be in a situation where like, uh, yeah, like Eastwall would have the bikes and Clontarf would have the bikes, but North Strand would decide they wouldn't. So if you wanted to go to the North Strand, you have nowhere to pick up a bike or nowhere to drop your bike off that's, because the local government of North Strand decided that there were no bikes. That's remarkable, isn't it? It goes down to like you know, like small blocks like that even. Yeah. And yeah, you, you, can, you can physically see it. Like So my road where I live um, uh, changes commune about 50 yards down. So the hmm. road surface changes and the pavement changes. So <laughs> half the road is new and the other half is full of potholes. And you see it when there's snow to be cleared. There's like videos taken from people's apartments above of the snow plough coming up to like the edge of the commune, ploughing half the road, turning around and going back, <laughs> leaving the road still completely impossible to use for people from either commune. That's not uh, my job. But they're not paid to do that half. That's for someone else. <laughs> <laughs> it's the funniest thing, isn't it? The, um, it's kind of wild. Yeah, it is. It's uh, but it just seems to be a central concept of government. It's like, where is the edge? Where does? Where? At what point do we stop caring? Yeah, but yeah. That's um, that is gas. And so yeah, we 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 a lot of people we we hear about Flanders and we think of um, maybe we think of character in the Simpsons and we think of Walloons and but like where is this coming from? Because we Belgium is a fairly recent country as European countries yeah. go. I mean, it's a bit of a compromised country intended as a, I mean, my understanding is that it was intended as a neutral zone to kind of stop the French and the Dutch going to war with each other so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they just agreed to put Belgium in the middle. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's really two countries in one. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, there's kind of quite a bit of animosity even between the between the two, uh, the, the Flemish and the Walloons. And yeah, it comes out in loads of language problems, a bit like a bit like the ones we might see to a certain extent playing out in the north of Ireland. Um, Do Belgian radio hosts talk about, you know, um, Flemish being a dead language and how much is spent on translation and that kind of thing? Not quite, <laughs> but there's, uh, there's definitely, there's a, there's a sense that Flemish money shouldn't be spent uh, on producing things in French, mm. so they they really divide things up. Um, yeah, there was. I mean, I think that the the craziest uh, example of this that that I heard was there was um, there's a town outside Brussels that's a bit of a there's lots of commuter towns outside Brussels because. Mm-hmm. Flemish people will work in Brussels, but they don't like to live there. They like to go back to Flanders to their nice little, clean, well-paved, lovely cycle path town. <laughs> um, sure. And there's a town called Leidekirk, or Leidekirke, mm-hmm. uh, and it got kind of famous temporarily uh, for banning 
francophone children from the playground and Ooh. their yeah their reasoning was that the uh, the safety information at the gate they were only making available in flemish so <laughs> if you were a francophone child you wouldn't know how to safely use the seesaw or whatever so you weren't allowed into the playground um <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> so that's the level of of pettiness that it sometimes comes to. God, yeah, God, that that's, uh, that sounds that, that that sounds all too familiar from home. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. And these two, it's to think that was yeah for over um for over a hundred years or so, or yeah maybe t- nearly two hundred years now. The idea that um it, it takes this long for the kind that a I guess a single Belgian identity hasn't completely formed yet. I mean, th- people always say the only two things keeping the country together are the royal family and the football team. Mm-hmm. And the football team's a lot more popular uh, than the royal family. <laughs> I'd say so. And it's funny because I remember when I was, um, when I, I did a, say, uh, a term in Louvain, or Leuven even when I was in college and I remember there we had some talks about you know it was it was in the it was in the Irish college there and in the town and one of the things they told us on the first day was a little bit of um hyperno Belgian trivia was that they ran up a sh- when they were deciding that Belgian what kind of country they'd have what what kind of government Belgium would have they they decided that constitutional monarchies were solid and generally the best way of doing things but they just had to pick someone suitable to be a king or a monarch and on the short list. And the short list had, you know, maybe uh, maybe 50 names on it. And uh, one of the names was Daniel O'Connell. No way. Because he was a graduate of a Belgian university, Leuven, and he was one of the world's most famous Catholic parliamentarians. Okay. With you know, with with with, a, with and he had a strong reputation as a barrister. So, you know, friendly with the friendly with the United Kingdom, friendly with kind of the Catholic mon- neighboring monarchies, and some ton- connection to the area. But wow. he, yeah, but uh, I guess he got pipped near the end. So Ireland came very close to having its own uh, colony in in the Congo. Yes, <laughs> I think well. it's probably a good thing they didn't do that because. The Belgian experience, yeah, the Belgian colonial, I mean, like Colin, we all agree that colonialism is pretty bad. Yeah. But, and even when you're comparing colonies to each other and saying, well, some are slightly less bad than others, it's generally taken that the Belgian Congo was one of the absolute worst colonies. Yeah, seems to have been. Uh, and uh, have you ever read King Leopold's Ghost? It's a good book about... Uh, about the Belgian colony and fantastic stuff about Roger Casement and all the stuff that he did uh, oh. in exposing the wrongdoing. Um, I'd recommend anyone with interest in Belgium to read it. It's very, very good. King um, Leopold's Ghost, who wrote that? King Leopold's Ghost. The name escapes me at the moment, uh, but if you search it, you will find it. Hope um, yes, please do. Uh, and yeah, I realised that there's a load of stuff about that that Belgians do not know. It's oh. really like it's really, really um not part of the national conversation how bad it was. Do and, they have colonial amnesia? Yeah, and I think the part part of that is that um part of why it's so bad and part of why they, they can kind of separate themselves from it or they feel that they can is that 
the colony was not initially owned by the Belgian state. It was like King Leopold II's like personal estate. Yes, it was. It was more rather than being a kind of a. It wasn't the Belgian government that owned it. It was actually the private property of the yeah. king. And so, yeah, so it's the same way that Prince Charles owns a lot of land in Kentucky, but he's not the king of it. Exactly. Yeah, I think it was. It was some sort of. Uh, shell company arrangement like that <laughs> and this allowed I mean even less oversight than existed over other European colonies so that's one of the contributing factors it seems to like the like barbaric stuff that happened over there um, and truly the, the Congo country seems to be one of the most ill-served states in the history of the world on one level it probably has more natural resources than belgium and ireland put together you had diamonds you have rubber and the thing is the rubber that really set things set things set the economy crazy it also had uranium you know where those nuclear bombs came from was mined there the first instance of the aids virus was there yeah and yeah yeah, so that's a huge amount of just misfortune and bad luck happening to a country that arguably in other circumstances would should be maybe one of the richest and happiest countries in the world if they were if they had direct access to their own resources yeah i mean and the i mean the aids virus coming from there is is super linked to that that sort of exploitation as well because it's mm-hmm. you know it's humans going deeper into forests and coming into contact with animals that you're not supposed to come into contact with basically yes. um and that sort of stuff still happens as well. I mean, palm oil now there, like massive deforestation there to to make palm oil for, yeah, all the companies that use that. So, you know, the echoes of that still continue. It's very sad. It is sad. That's a terrible thing. And I know it's something that um, it's something that I mean, Ireland has that has sympathy for. And the Ireland's first peacekeeping mission was. Uh, was towards the Belgian Congo when it was in the, the decolonizing process. Um, shortly after the Belgians decided to leave, and they, their manner of leaving was as was as careless and heartless as their manner of arriving, leaving effectively to so leaving the country to almost immediately enter a kind of a civil war of sorts. And the Irish peacekeeping mission, along with some other countries, was there to. Was was ideally to try, try and calm that down. Is I presume that's uh, that, that's probably another day's episode, but it is just one of those other yeah. Irish Belgian connections. So and you and overwhelmingly, like Belgian people don't feel they don't they don't wring their hands over this. They don't feel guilt or no, <laughs> that's yeah, a terrible yeah. generalization. I mean uh, the. The book, uh, the Kimmy of Hall's ghost, uh, ghost book, was like was attacked pretty like violently by uh, by a lot of people in Belgium. They were like disgusted with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there are a bunch of people here who do want to reckon with the colonial past. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of them would be um, uh, people who have a connection to to the Congo themselves. Like either people from there, people whose parents or grandparents or great grandparents are from there, mm-hmm. uh, who feel you know more touched by it, um, and there is a big conversation about all the statues of King Leopold that are around, 
And yeah. this has kind of flared up, I mean, with the the Black Lives Matter protests. Um, yes, mm, of course. This conversation has popped up again. Um, the statues do get vandalised every now and again. There was a bust of his in the local park that got stolen a while ago. Um, there is this, like, oh, horrible um, statue uh, of of King Leopold at uh, one of the coastal towns with oh, yes. all these fawning, like, um, uh, Congolese people, mm. like, kneeling down, like, like just overawed with how magnificent he is on his horse or whatever. Um, kind Ooh. of this kind of, you know, uh, the noble savage who's, like, delighted that, you know, they have been civilised or something gross like that. Uh, and um, some anti-colonialist people, uh, they go and they cut the hands off the statues to show the the violence that, like, this, this cutting Ooh. hands off was, like, a punishment, typical punishment that the Belgians used to do to uh, Congolese people. That's... Uh, so they cut the hands off the statues to, uh, to show that. And I think they used to come and weld new hands back on and then they gave up welding the hands back on. Yeah, I can well imagine that's um, that's a very powerful statement. Yeah, so there's, I think maybe maybe the conversation is shifting a bit because um, a lot of the big parks in Brussels, mm. uh, King Leopold II paid for with money from from his colony. Mm. So he basically wanted to build a legacy, and he used this uh, this money to to do that. Um, and so a bunch of the the parks have statues of him or like um some sort of memorials to like our brave boys going over to the congo and <laughs> those tend not to get restored so they're um they're not taken away but they're yeah. kind of left to they're you know conveniently ignored in the um in the budget for statue restoration <laughs> so maybe there's like a yeah, it's a compromise. Belgium's a big compromise country, so maybe this is the way that they do it. They're not going to take it down, but they're not going to. They're going to fix know, it either. Just yeah. let it let it rot. That's um, mm. that's gas. That's uh, and there's no um Belgian equivalent of the daughters of the Confederacy sticking these things up. It's all his own work. Uh, yeah, it was. It was just him. It was like there was. I mean, it was a vanity project. Uh. He built parks, I mean, he landscaped parks so that you could see his other monuments in other parts of the city from them. Like, things are, it's, I mean, it's quite a feat of engineering. Things are lined up across the city so you can see different things that he paid for with stolen money from uh, from, from slavery God. and whatever in the Congo. Would, it's crazy. Would, would you be able, like, what, I mean, would you have, I mean, he, he must have had, he must have been deeply insecure about how he became king. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's mad. And he never went there. Like, he was obsessed with the Congo and getting everything he could out of it, and he never went. Mm, well. Seems insane know. to me. It does. So, um, so back to, back to kind of modern Belgium, modern Brussels. You moved there eight years ago. Uh, you, met a, you met a young woman. From, is she yes. Belgian? She's French. French, oh. Yeah. Fantastic. Hey, uh, what's it called again? Um, there's a, there's a word there's a word for that. I remember a Spanish friend of mine was talking about you know it's Europe them um, two Europeans meeting in a, a third European country or something like, it's a, something like Europe Spanish stew or something. But it was a Spanish fantasy. stew. There's a, there's a, there's a film about all there was a film about all these European housemates sharing a house in Brussels and it was called something like that. Um, 
uh, it'll come back to me, but um, but it's yeah, obviously this is one of these opportunities. You again, you, you weren't planning staying staying very long in Brussels, but then you know, something wonderful happened. You met a young French woman, and then you had a daughter. Yeah, and like like any Irish like any father, you want to give give your start your daughter off in the right place in life by giving her a beautiful name. Yeah, so um, uh, we we went through the list of uh, we had like a very uh, a long list of, of possible Irish names, uh, but uh, given the difficulty of spelling, uh, some of my favourite Irish names, uh, f- you know, for some, for for some Irish people it's difficult, and I think for for French people thinking about the the extended family and thinking about. Uh, her future classmates and teachers and whatever we decided to try go for something that was at least understandable when you read it and you weren't uh, an Irish person so we went for Una which oh. uh, I got a laugh from my Italian colleagues anyway uh, and if I had Spanish more Spanish colleagues I'm sure that they get a laugh out of it as well oh is it, is it a child, word oh, it un, oh uno oh yeah of course that's, that's brilliant it just means one yeah <sighs> Um, of course, that's iconic. And three letters can't go wrong. You can't yeah. possibly go wrong with such a simple name with three letters. Sim- simple, elegant, classy. Yes. Or can you? Uh, yeah, well, th- this <laughs> was where the difficulty came up. So, um, yeah, we went, we, uh, Una was born in November. And uh, in Belgium, you have to register the birth uh, within 14 days. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to register it in the local commune where the birth took place, so no. not the local commune where you live. <laughs> uh, thankfully, the maternity hospital has a desk um, from the commune administration in the lobby, so you can go and, and do just this. You can register the births. Um, and so I I went down after, I don't know, whatever, 48 hours of being in the hospital, um, like a bit of a zombie person, and... Uh, went to register in them mm-hmm. and we didn't even guess at that stage to the to her uh, her given name because when I told the lady at the desk that we wanted to give her both my second name and Aurelia's second name uh, she told me I'd need a letter from the embassy to say that it was legal in Ireland for someone to have two second names oh. uh, so this was a bit of a a hurdle so i left it a few days went to the embassy there's a very nice guy there who wrote that letter he was furious he was like i don't know how many letters we sent to this hospital and you are not the first irish person to try give two names to a child there this is insane mm-hmm. uh gave me a letter uh which i took to uh the local commune building uh in andrelect famous for their football club and that's oh, where yes. the hospital was uh, went there. They were like, thanks for the letter. Fantastic. We can give them the two second names. And she said, the woman at the desk said, can you please write the name as as it is written? And then I'll type it in just so there's no mistakes. So I wrote Una with a U father. I uh, gave it to her and she went to put it in the registration system. And the registration system is not, it's not like a text box where you can just type in the name. Mm-hmm. Uh, it used to be that there was like a pre-approved list of names oh, and you yes. had to pick a name off the list but then I guess several decades ago they, they let you put in other names 
but they'll still stop you from putting in stupid names. And one of their ways to stop you putting in stupid names, and this might have given Elon Musk a bit of trouble, um, is that they can't type it in. They have to select the letters one by one from like a menu. Oh. So they have this grid, which has all the letters of the alphabet down the side and the accents across the top. But not every letter has every accent. So you couldn't put you couldn't put an umlaut on a G or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so the buttons only appear where they approve them to appear. And she told me there's no there's no U father. There was a lowercase U father, but there wasn't an uppercase U father because it doesn't exist in French. Um, there's and, no accent on a U in French. Uh, not on an uppercase U. Real? Oh, so you can have. Yeah. Okay, like yeah. Audrey Tattoo. Uh, does that have a lower a lowercase? Oh, no, it's actually father? it's it's the it's the grave. It's not a father. It's, it's like a Scottish Scottish father. Okay, yeah, um, yeah, but it's the accent aigu, uh, but there isn't that on an uppercase U. So yeah. the nice one with the desk was like, "I'm very sorry, but we can't we can't do this." <laughs> and so I was asking like, what are my options she was like well like we have all the we have like the the cedilla no what's the little thing over the N in Spanish what's it called that's oh I, I know I know the one you mean uh, we'll, we'll stick the little wiggly out. thing over yeah, the N the, the wiggly thing like, they have that they have all the the accents on the letters for the Polish names they were like and she told me it's a big Polish population and the Polish embassy you know made a request to the National Register to include all these letters so that Polish citizens or Polish people can um, register names correctly here. Okay. She was like, well, the Irish government obviously never asked. And so it was probably a week through my 14 days of like ticking time bomb to register the name. And I was like, I don't know if I can you know, get it. Yeah the Ministry of Foreign <laughs> Affairs to talk to one of the Belgian governments and uh, and sort this out. So I was like, okay, well, my only option is to... First of all, she asked me if we thought of any other names and I wasn't on the fly about to, uh, you know, <laughs> You're just gonna name her Quailfin or something instead. But um, uh, so uh, I said, okay, look, well, we register without the father and maybe I'll try and sort it out. So it was actually pretty upsetting. She like she like on the official form like scratched out the name of my daughter that I'd written for the first time after oh. she was born, and I had to sign underneath it to say that like this is not her name, uh, and then sign under the the misspelled name with no father. So she was registered with no father, and then Ooh. yeah. So I was it was quite it was quite depressing leaving a kind of faceless administration building in. Uh, a Brussels suburb where I don't even live uh, with a misspelled birth certificate Um, and then I complained about this on Twitter and the guy from the Irish Embassy uh, because I think I must have tagged him in tagged the Embassy in a previous thing sent me a message saying like this is insane we can write you a letter saying this is like this is a real name this is how you spell it. Like, please accommodate our, our citizen in spelling his daughter's name correctly. Um, so yeah, the guy James at the embassy, who was like the loveliest guy ever, uh, he 
he wrote me that letter and then I with a few days left decided to to apply myself again uh, for for the sake of Una's spelling but also for the sake of social media content uh, to uh, to get it spelled correctly so I contacted like the um, the civil servant in charge of like registrations in that commune I contacted like the local councillor who's like the local minister in charge of registration so like the okay. political person as well as the civil service person um, and then I also tried to contact like the national registry where everyone's like ID cards come from uh, but I was kind of hitting a brick wall uh, when I decided that the thing to do was to find the organigram of the national registry saying who does all the different functions oh yes um, I found the name of the IT guy and I reckoned you know if a decision is made to include a you father so I can spell this correctly he's got to be the guy who updates the system that then updates all the computers so that the you father appears on that woman's screen so she can click it and change the birth certificate yeah. I found his name uh, and then on like page 7 of the Google search results found an old job ad where he'd been looking for an assistant that had his mobile phone number on it oh wow and I called him I called him in a panic at like 4 o'clock on a Friday afternoon oh um, well, everyone loves getting calls those civil servants yeah, love being called on 4 o'clock on Friday and was basically like please don't hang up please, you're the only person who can help me and explained my situation to him uh, and he told me yes I'm the right person I promise I will talk to my colleagues on Monday uh, we will try to get back to you um, and so at this stage I had like two days left or something by Monday oh, um, you're running off the clock yeah and then Tuesday morning first thing I got like a bunch of emails from everyone who I had contacted all claiming credit for having solved the problem <laughs> and telling me that I could I could go back to to Angela Commune to collect the birth certificate with the corrected name spelled with the father. Fantastic. You got it. I got it. So she is the uh, she is the first Una in Belgium with her name spelled correctly. There's fifty other Unas about, I think. Uh, but they're all they're all Unas because they uh, don't have the father. <laughs> Well, that's fantastic. That's absolute triumph. And yeah. you, you got the birth certificate, certificate recognized. But yeah. at that point, the next step, and then you just breathe a sigh of relief. But as often happens in monster movies, right after you, you know, you think the monster's been knocked off. And then you're just, the, the heroes are all laughing, slapping each other on the back, and you can see a monster rising in the back. What happened? Better French passport. Yeah, so um, Irish passports, no problem. They know how to do fathers. Uh, we registered her for her French passports, and uh, the the French came back with an even stronger computer. Said no. They said Constitution says no, um, <laughs> and there's the French are extremely prescriptive about this. Uh, mm. They do not allow any registration on documents with anything that they don't think are French uh, French characters. Uh, so I asked, oh, what about the Spanish N? What about the Polish like uh, accents on their letters? And they were like, no, they have to pick an equivalent in in real letters. And 
<laughs> yeah, so they just uh, flatly is, denied. France is probably has has the. I mean, people we we talk about kind of Ireland's relationship with English or Irish, the Irish language relationship with English a lot, but French is. The Republic of France has, is probably the sternest kind of monolingual, has, maybe it is most aggressively monolingual country in the European Union. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they. Um, I think there's they have news stories every every year when like the academy like officially allows new words in, mm. and um, I mean, I think that people laugh sometimes at at Irish for. Um, you know, inventing new Irish words for stuff that yeah. initially was an English word, but the French are really serious about it. Like they really try and resist, and that's what's really strange is that you have like the, the French, like their, um, like their their nationality and their pride is so tied up with their language mm-hmm. in that respect. Yes. And then I live in Brussels where it's mostly French speaking, mm-hmm. um, but their language is not their language. It's it's French and. Yeah. They're they're very willing to compromise on loads of stuff. Um, so I mentioned that like the football team is one of the things holding the country together. Um, so when the football team, if they have like uh, because it's supposed to be this compromise thing that's neither Wallonian nor Flemish, a lot of their stuff, their slogans are in English because oh. that's an acceptable compromise language. If you can only print something in one language in Belgium. It's better to print it in English because you're going to annoy everyone kind of equally. Yeah. Instead of instead of completely annoying one half of the country and causing a constitutional crisis. That's fantastic, isn't it? That's that's yeah. fascinating, and the, the way that that I suppose yeah, that language finds a way, and you know, the solution to a, two people having two languages instead of third language. It's like the way they say there's there's too many uh, in an office. We we'll often say that there's there's too many. Um, manuals and regulations to we're just going to simplify them instead of having 15 they end up at 16 yeah this is true <laughs> yeah it's it's, uh, it's just gonna, that's, that's just uh, a fascinating system and have you had, had any luck with getting the FADA in since with the French with the French no they they said like there is no flexibility that's the thing about I mean the Belgian system is complicated and messy but you almost feel like there's if you can use that messiness to your advantage, uh, you can get things done. But the French were extremely rigid and they said no. They said there's no father. So she still does not have a French passport yet. Um, but, uh, yeah, they're, I don't know. Uh, it's probably um, extremely illegal to draw a father on, but I've considered it. I'd <laughs> say <laughs> so. But until then, you do have a letter from the Kingdom of Belgium confirming that your daughter has a father. She has the father. Fantastic. And yeah, hopefully, yeah, yeah, hopefully one day she will maybe even learn a few Irish words too, in addition to uh, everything else she's learning. She uh, should do. Should do. Um, John, we love to ask all our guests what their favorite Irish word is. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> I probably should have warned you of this. You should have. <laughs> um, I think, actually, yeah, in the spirit of, of um, uh, Irish like words, being fake English words in some cases. I one I always really liked was Gohan. Yes. And I prefer to use Gohan instead of phone. Because mm-hmm. I think it's I think Gohan's just a really it's a really nice word. I think it's nice. It's the you know the old voice box. The, the old yeah, the voice voicer. Machine. 
a voicer. It's, it's yeah. excellent. Because, yes, yeah, it's like tele and phone. It's, you know, it's not really English either. I think it's pretty cool. That's fantastic. And so any other, any advice you give to an Irish person moving to Belgium? Uh, don't give up. Try and try again. <laughs> uh, if someone tells you no, find someone else <laughs> and see what they say. Great um, yeah, it's, uh, I would say, get out of the international scene. Uh, oh. A lot of people think Brussels is is very boring because they only meet other um, people who move to Brussels for the type of job that they have. Mm. It's like if you if you visited Dublin and you only went to the IFSC, uh, yes. that's a lot of people's experience of Brussels is because they only they come to Brussels and only you know mingle in the in the bubble of the EU institutions and everything else around it. There is a like you know there's a real country out there and you should get to know it. Fantastic, wise words. Excellent. So, John Highland, thank you very much for joining us this evening. Thanks, Eric. Okay, so until the next time, it's a slon from me. Slon. <laughs> slon. Mind yourselves. Be well. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. The bombs that were landed on Nagasaki and Helsinki 